We're glad you're here. If you are a guest, um, you came on a good day. We don't feed people the whole time. You know, usually you have to fast during the sermon, but hey, enjoy yourself. I'm going to share some scripture with you over the next few moments, and we've got three testimonies from some of the biggest names in the NFL that I know that are going to bless your life, and, uh, and I'm going to share some scriptures from the Word. We're going to put those on the screen, though. I don't want you to get butter on your Bible pages today. And uh, so we'll trek together on that. And as we watch those stories, there's three things that I want to share today from my heart. I want to talk about the way, the work, and the will. I want to talk about the way that God wants me to go, the work that God wants me to do, and the will that God has for my life. I was thinking this week about the scripture in Revelation that says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You're going to hear some powerful testimonies today. My prayer is that you would leave with your own. So can we just start with a word of prayer as we get into this first story? God, thank you so much for the blood of the lamb that we sang about earlier. His name is Jesus. He is the king forever. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your life's blood on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God. And Lord, we thank you for the word of our testimony. Lord, some of us, we need a new testimony today. So God, we invite you to show up and to move in this service in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Watch this first story. I remember one time in third grade, a, a kid came over as we were just playing catch innocently. He just came over, he said, you really throw the football well. And I said, oh, thanks, man. He said, no, no, no. You really throw the football well. And I thought, oh, okay. Played my very first varsity game my junior year of high school, and I knew that this was a big year for recruiting, so I knew that I needed to play well to have a chance to play in college. And in the very first quarter of the very first game of my very first varsity season, I got hit on my left side and, and broke my ankle. And I remember driving back from the hospital with a cast on my ankle. And there were tears in my eyes, and I called my dad, and I said, Dad, because I'm going to miss this season, it means that I can't play in college. The dream is over, if you will, to play in college. And my dad said, Kirk, you don't know that. Uh, think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. At that moment, as a 17-year-old junior in high school, I made Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 my life verse. And um, from that moment on, said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust him and let him sort out the rest. A year and a half ago, I said it would be impossible to play college football and now I'm signing a full scholarship to have college paid for to play for a school that would have been my dream school all along. You know, that was only the beginning, and yet at that time I thought that alone uh, teaches me what it means to walk by faith and how big God is, and yet God said, Kirk, I, I haven't done anything yet. I'm gonna take you on a journey here. Just keep trusting me. The night before the draft, my dad sat our family down and he read from 1 Samuel 16, where David is anointed king. And he said, this passage has the feel of a draft because Samuel goes to the home of Jesse and he says, bring out your sons from your sons will be the next king. Well, he goes through the, the first and he says, surely this must be the one. I mean, he looks the part. And the, the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, no, he's not the one. And then he goes through each one, and he goes through seven, and the Lord says no to all of them. And so Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any other sons? Because the Lord said the seven you brought to me are not it. 
said, well, I have one more, David. He's out in the field. I didn't even think he was in the running. So David, he said, bring him. So David's brought before Samuel. Samuel sees him, and the Lord says, that's the one. And my dad's point to me was, Kirk, there's a lot of outward appearance looking going on right now around the NFL with the draft, and there will be going forward. Ultimately, as you've seen through your upbringing, the Lord directs your steps. The Lord has his hand on your life, and the Lord is not looking at the outward appearance. The Lord is looking at the heart. My dad came over and he said, Kirk, do you know what number quarterback you were? And I said, no, I, I don't. I said, I know there's usually 10 or 11 that get picked in the draft every year. He said, you were the eighth quarterback. He said, we read 1 Samuel 16 two nights ago, and David was the eighth son of Jesse. He said, I think the Lord is speaking to you. He's saying, Kirk, I have my hand on your life. When you fly to Washington, just trust me that I've got the next year, two, three, four, whatever it may be, under my control. probably had more where are you God moments than I have had the moments where I know he's near but I look back and I see he's faithful and he knows what he's doing and he gives us just enough I want to see lives changed for the kingdom and I want as many people as possible to come to know the hope of the gospel but also not only to come to know Jesus through the gospel, but then to make him Lord of their life and to see what I've seen in terms of decades of the Lord's hand guiding a life. And that's a journey that we're all on and we're all in different places on that journey. But um, that's what I want my life to be about. Amen, amen. There's a way that God wants you to go. And can I just tell you today that the way that God sees things and does things is not the way that we see them and do them? And that's not a negative statement. That's a good thing. How many of you are glad that God doesn't always do things the way that you thought they should have been done? In fact, he says why in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are, Above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The Apostle Paul was trying to explain this to an intellectual community, a bunch of academic scholars, and, and, and so he says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And then just a couple verses later, he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. <clears throat> Let me just tell you right out of the gate, my message today is very simple, but it's also very significant. We live in a world that is very complex, uh, very complicated, and, and everybody can access any uh, amount of information at the tip of their fingers. And a lot of times that gets us in trouble because we want things to make sense 
And, and oftentimes our desire for us to understand things hinders us from getting a revelation that God wants us to have about trust. The, the truth is God doesn't do things the same way that we would do them. He chose the eighth son of Jesse to be the king of Israel. And even more astounding than that, God chose death by Roman crucifixion to be the means of conquering death through his son, Jesus Christ. And let me just say, if it hasn't happened yet, it will. You're going to come to a place where you have to decide between understanding, which is limited, and faith, which goes way beyond understanding. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 and 2, there is a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. Jesus himself talked about this when he was teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When I think about that narrow road, <coughs> I think about a story I read recently about the NASA space shuttle. Back in the Apollo program of the 1960s, when the first rocket was being built that would launch into space, the, the spacecraft was manufactured from pieces that were manufactured in all different congressional districts across the nation. And so when the shuttle program came along later, the same was true of that program. For example, the, the twin solid fuel engines that you see on the right and left <laughs> that would allow them to get into space, those were manufactured in Utah. And so the plan was that they would be manufactured in Utah and that they would be transported by trains all the way to Florida where the launch pad would be, which meant they couldn't be any wider than what could be carried on the four-foot, eight-and-a-half-inch wide track of the Transcontinental Railroad. So they designed them so that they could fit on the trains, on those tracks, and fit through the tunnels to get to Florida. Think about this. Uh, one of the most incredible feats of human engineering, the rocket, the, the shuttle, <coughs> that would ultimately be a, a key component of, of heavens. One of the key components that determined the engineering of that was something as archaic as trains. But it's even crazier than that. When you think about that it was after the Civil War in the 1860s when the groundwork was being laid for the Transcontinental Railroad, Abraham Lincoln was actually the one to get to make the final decision on how wide the train track would be. He's the one that decided four feet, eight and a half inches. Abraham Lincoln. And the reason he went with that is because he wanted it to connect with the main lines on the East Coast. So essentially, with that decision for the Transcontinental Railway, he established a, 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 a norm for trains in America. It's going to be four feet, eight and a half inch, inches wide on the rails. What's even more fascinating is that they got that distance from the tram system in England. What's even more amazing than that is that the tram system was laid four feet, eight and a half inches wide in England because that's how wide the horse and cart paths were. 
And what's even more mind-boggling than that is the horse and cart paths were made four feet, eight and a half inches wide because that's how wide the Romans made their roads 2,000 years ago. So think about this. The International Space Station, built in outer space, (coughs) couldn't be done without the shuttle. And the limitations of that engineering was determined by a decision that was made for a Roman road 2,000 years ago. That's pretty incredible. Especially when we think about the reality that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was talking about the way to be saved, the way that you could one day soar through the heavens in a relationship with God, he laid a road for salvation 2,000 years ago. In John 14, when he said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. What an incredible thought. Can I tell you, your destiny is to soar in the heavens, but there is a way that God wants you to go. There is a way. His name is Jesus. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the work that God wants to do, but first I want you to hear this story from Demario Davis. The first year I played football, I played running back. I went out and scored like, you know, 50 touchdowns in a year. Our team went undefeated all the way to the championship game, and I just kind of knew then that football was a possible avenue for success for me. Going into my ninth grade year, I'm introduced um, to marijuana, I'm introduced to alcohol, I'm introduced to uh, sex. This is a 14-year-old kid uh, dealing with this stuff, and I didn't have a father figure around to teach me, you know, what all that meant. All I had was to look to were the guys in the streets, which was drug dealers, guys who had criminal records, and I was looking up to those guys. So I just figured I was supposed to do what they did. I wanted to show them that I wasn't scared, that I wasn't uh, afraid to be a bad boy or whatever. I just wanted to impress them. I tried to jack um, another kid for his wallet. I tried to steal his wallet in the hallway, and I ended up getting in trouble and getting um, expelled from school. I remember my mom calling me on the phone and just hearing her brokenness when she answered the phone, you know, just like, DeMario, what have you done? And when she said that, it was almost to the point of, you have messed up your life. And I remember uh, being out running the streets with some of my friends, and we were breaking in cars. I punched the window, and I cut my arm up. And I have this uh, serious gash in my arm, and I felt like this was the first time I heard an audible voice from God. And he said, that's strike number two. The first strike was you getting kicked out of school. The second strike is you almost killed yourself tonight. If it would have been a few inches down, I could have gashed my wrist and died that night. That scared me to the point of, from the rest of my junior and my senior year, I cleaned up my act. I get to college, but the fruit of my life still isn't changed. I get back and I'm a, all of a sudden I'm at this college and now I'm a small fish in a big pond. So I feel like I gotta prove myself all over again. So I go back to drink and I go back to smoke and I go back to partying and I land myself in jail. We stealing groceries out of Walmart. And I just remember looking around and like, whatever I'm trying to do with my life, it isn't working. I had a chance to make it out and now my coach can take my scholarship and I'd be sent back home. And I, and I messed up my opportunity before I even played a snap on the field. Fortunately, the coach did not kick me off the team. He gave me another chance. Cause a little while later, our team chaplain who I've been going to Bible studies with, he started to spend time with me in the Word. He was talking about, you know, these radical ideas that I had never even thought about. And then he started to show me in the Bible that matched exactly what he was saying. 
And I never had looked at the Bible in that light. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. And he was talking about, this is talking about your heart. So my whole theory with God was, at the end of the day, God, you know I got a good heart. Well, this was showing me that I had a bad heart because nothing but bad fruit was coming from my life. But then he told me something that was reassuring and encouraging. He said, God will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that night I went home and I was scared and I just prayed. It was the most sincere prayer I had ever prayed. I said, God, I need a new heart. That's all I said. The next day I was hoping that everything would change. I woke up and by the end of the day I was doing a lot of the same stuff I had been doing. And I was like, man, you said that God would give me a new heart if I asked. He said, if you ask for a new heart, God will honor it and God will give it to you. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but he's gonna give it to you. The message started to resonate and I started to understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to pay for those sins. And until we get a new heart, we can't fix what's coming out of us. And that God wants to come inside of us and clean us so that he can draw us back to himself. And it was like he was taking the scales off my eyes. At that moment, he removed the taste of alcohol from my mouth. He didn't remove marijuana and sex right then. But I said, God, you're the Lord of my life. And I'm gonna choose to serve you. When you wanna move these things, you will. And he did a little bit later. Um, he removed marijuana, and then uh, I was in an imperial relationship for five years. God broke it. He was like, it's time to get out of this. And I got out of that relationship. For two years, I walked in purity. I dated my wife, and then we were married a year and a half later. And that was the first time I'd ever did a relationship the right way. And to say that I've done that now, and then look at the, the benefits of uh, a blessed relationship and our marriage of after four years and our, our beautiful children, just to see that the fruit that's come from it, you just understand God is a God of order. And when we do things in his order, he can bless them more. I let go and I said, God, I'm trusting you. I don't know where you're gonna take me. And he's brought me closer and closer to him. So powerful tell you there's a work that God wants you to do there's a work that he wants you to do how many of you remember the the old movie the Wizard of Oz I think a lot of people look at following Jesus kind of like Dorothy first looked at the invitation to go to Oz you know the little munchkin said just follow the yellow brick road I said that's it follow the yellow brick road follow the yellow brick road Follow the yellow brick road. Follow. And so she starts singing and skipping and dancing. And hey, this is easy. We're just going to get to Oz. We're going to follow the yellow brick road. And some people think that's what following Jesus is like. But she got down that road a little ways. And then it turned into a, a divergence of four different directions. The path led through the dark, scary woods. Before long, trees are throwing stuff at you. Flying monkeys are attacking you. How many of you know that sometimes following Jesus is like following the yellow brick road? The truth is, giving your life to Jesus is not hard. God can save you in a moment, but living for him is work. Can anybody say amen to that? Living for him is work. You know, the law of sowing and reaping is, is true in our lives. The law of sowing and reaping says you reap what you sow. It also says that you reap more than what you sow. But can I tell you this third principle is also true. You reap after you sow. And some of us, we need to remember that when it comes to our relationship with God because you're living in yesterday's harvest field. And we live in such a world of immediate gratification that, you know, we want to say a little prayer and, and try to make a commitment to God on Sunday. And if everything's not fixed on Monday, we go, well, that didn't work. But can I tell you, you're living in yesterday's harvest field. 
which means you have to make room and give space in your life for the grace of Jesus to cultivate a harvest of righteousness in your life as you walk in obedience to the work that he's called you to do. That's why Paul the Apostle said in Galatians chapter 6, he said, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I just want to encourage somebody today to give God time and space to produce righteousness in your life. I love that testimony from Demario Davis. He said, man, I, I finally gave God my life, and he took my heart of stone, and he gave me a heart of clay, but I still had issues. I still had some addictions. I still had some struggles. I still had some baggage and bondage in my life, but one day he woke up to the reality that he's living in a new harvest field because the seeds of obedience have produced a harvest of righteousness in his life. For some of you, maybe you, you still struggle with the addiction. You still struggle with the, the, the negative mindsets. But I want to tell you, if you'll do the work that God calls you to do, you will see the fruit that God wants you to grow in your life. One more thought I want to share with you today. But first, I want you to hear one more testimony from Benjamin and Kirsten Watson. I think you're going to like this one. If we lose, possibly my last game, uh, if we win, which hopefully we do, uh, there'll be another game after that, which will be in Atlanta for the Super Bowl. And on that Monday or Tuesday, I started getting pain in my stomach. The next day, I ended up going to uh, the hospital, got a couple of CAT scans and gave me some medicine and uh, sent me home. Another doctor looked at my CAT scan and said, I think Benjamin has uh, acute appendicitis. You need to get him to the hospital right now. A dear friend named David, um, came over to the hospital, prayed for me. My family was there and I woke up. That was the first night I slept the whole week. They released me from the hospital. I go back to the facility and uh, you know, they tell me that, well, you weren't here the first two days of practice, Wednesday and Thursday, so the plan is for you not to play. Crushed. Because in my head, I had this awesome story of I had appendicitis, God healed me. I came back in the NFC Championship, caught the winning touchdown. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's gonna be a Christian sensation. That's how my mom was rolling. Late April, early May, started thinking about, you know, maybe, maybe I wanna play again. New England reached out after we made them word I wanted to play and it seemed substantial like it might really be an opportunity to play. So when Benjamin decided to continue to play, then everything kind of shifts. Moved the family across the country again. And so the kids are there, the guys are moving the boxes out. It's the memory of walking through the house when there's nothing in there with all the kids. practice that week. I'm not activated that first week. Then the next week, things are kind of weird. Um, and I was released. I was cut. I, was, I, I, didn't, I wasn't good enough. We had five kids. And the question we always get is, are you done? And I just didn't have the yes. 
And then one night, I remember him saying, you know, let's let's go for number six. Let's try. And so I felt like we had waited, we had been patient, um, and that we had both heard yes from the Lord. And so to go and, and then get pregnant immediately, I was like, we were supposed to have six. And so the last thing that ever crossed my mind is that we wouldn't have the baby. When it didn't work out. And we found out that we had lost the baby. I remember thinking, God, I thought I was doing what you said. You know, five kids is a lot. We said yes to six. We must have been wrong because surely God wouldn't allow that. And so we got pregnant again. And I said, well, maybe God really does want us to have this sixth baby. We were excited. We told the kids and then something went wrong again. The baby's not growing and um, there's no heartbeat. I'm just trying to be obedient and I don't understand. And so this time was really rough and We try again in July, and then I get pregnant. I look, I'm looking at the lady giving the ultrasound, and she makes this weird face. And I say, is everything okay? She's like, yeah, I see something. And so I say, well, is it a baby? Do you see a baby? And she goes, I see two babies. I look over at Benjamin, I see him walking towards the TV screen with his mouth open. And then I look at the screen and I see two, two babies. And I say, you didn't tell me you had twins in your family. Because I don't, I was like, I don't have any twins in my family. I know we have twins. for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But what is that good? That good is not necessarily what I think good is. It's always good, but it might not always be pleasant. Then Nimi says, if God loved you, wouldn't that be easy? And somewhere along the line, I've bought in that lie. Then I have to go back to truth, and I look in the Bible, and I don't see that anywhere. <laughs> His promises are that you are an overcomer, that I love you, that I'll never leave you or forsake you. His promises are that I will always provide for your needs according to riches and glory. The promises are that I loved you so much that I sent my own son to die for you. His promises are that I've already written the book, so I know what's happening when you don't. His promises are eternal life. His promises are that I'll give you beauty for ashes. Wow. That's powerful. That's powerful. I want to tell you that God has a will for your life. And God is working all things together for the good of those that love him. But that doesn't mean that all the things that are happening in your life, God calls good. See, the key to understanding is to distinguish between what is the immediate good and what is the ultimate good. Here's what we do. We miscount the blessing of God when we get so fixated on the immediate good. And the truth is that there are some things that happen in our life that are not good. When someone's abused, 
when someone's lied to or, or cheated, when you've been hurt and someone has wronged you, the Bible calls those things sin, and sin will be judged by God. They're not good in the moment. So not everything that happens to us is good, but God's not focused on our immediate good in all times. He's focused on our ultimate good. So in the worst case scenarios of your life, it's important that we recognize that God still works through temporary pain for eternal good purposes. I can't think of a better story to illustrate the difference between what is immediate good and what is ultimately good than one of my favorite African folk tales. I've told this story before, but it's just so fitting. It's the story of a king uh, and his best friend. They grew up together, and the friend always had this saying that they would say. They would say, this is good didn't really matter what they were doing or what the circumstance was. It was almost like a habit. He said, this is good. And one day the king went out hunting with his best friend, and the friend loaded the rifle, and he handed it to the king, and come off. And the king is screaming, and the friend says, this is good. <laughs> the king says, this is not good. I just blew my thumb off, and it's your fault. And he had his best friend thrown in just without his thumb and he gets captured <coughs> by a tribe of cannibals and so they take the king and they they, they tie him to the stake and, and so they're, they're getting ready to have a little royal rotisserie and they're <coughs> they're about to light the fire and they notice he's missing his thumb and there's an old tribal tradition that you can't eat anyone who's not whole I guess everybody has standards at some point right and so they decide they can't eat the king so they untie him and they let him go and the king it, it dawns on him he realizes me not having a thumb just saved my life and then he realizes my best friend is locked in prison so he explains to him everything that happened and he says I'm so sorry that I locked you in jail. This was not good. And his friend looked at him. He said, no, this is good. And he says, I don't understand you, man. I locked my best friend in jail for a whole year. How is this good? And he said, if I wasn't in jail, I would have been hunting with you. And I still have my thumbs. <laughs> See, that's the difference. In the immediate good... And the ultimate good. Some of us were just too short-sighted to see that God is still working things together for our good. Here's the truth, friends. I may not be able to explain everything that's happened in your life. The truth is I can't explain everything that's happened in my life. But I know that one day it'll make sense. Maybe not today. Some of it, maybe not in this lifetime, but at some point, we'll discern the reality that God has been working. And though I don't understand everything that's happened in your life, nor mine, I don't know what circumstances brought you to church today. But you're here, and this is good. This is good. You're here right now. And you're being reminded that there is a God in heaven who works all things together for the good of his people hear me today there is a way that God wants you to go that way was established 2,000 years ago 
at the cross of Calvary, Jesus made a way that we could soar through the heavens in a relationship with God. There is a work that God wants you to do. It's not enough to just pray a little prayer, you know, check a box at a church service. No, there, there's work to be done. And for some of us, it's not about knowing the way or committing to the way. It's about committing to the work. To say more, more than just a Sunday morning experience, maybe you're hearing the voice of the Spirit of God today calling you to take up your cross, to follow Jesus, to commit to the work. For some of us, we're, we struggle with the will of God. The story doesn't always end with twins. Some of you know that too well. But the truth is, God is working for your good. And one of the greatest responsibilities of the church is to help each other win. In fact, Paul the Apostle said in Galatians chapter 6 too, he said, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So one of the greatest things we can do to be obedient to our Savior is to carry each other's burdens. So we're going to end this service in a moment of prayer. And I want to ask you to give us the opportunity to carry your burdens with you. Some of you, you need to make a confession today. A confession that you, you haven't been following the way. You haven't been living a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to acknowledge that just by lifting up a hand. And let me just say, before we even get there, you don't need me to know. That's not why I ask you to raise your hand today. You don't need to come to an altar because God's power is more available through me or through one of our prayer team members than it is where you're sitting. But there's something powerful about confession. There's something powerful about letting other people help you bear your burdens. The Bible says that we confess our sins one to another, that you may be healed. Before we pray, I was thinking about the, the reality that in today's big game, the offense gets 11 players on the field. The defense gets just 11 players on the field. But there's about 53 that are standing on the sideline ready to play. Not all of them are even going to get in the game. But if their team wins, you can guarantee every one of them are going to get a ring. They're going to get the Super Bowl ring because they're on the winning team. What's even more interesting than that is that Anywhere between 300 and 900 Super Bowl rings are being made for the winning team. And depending on how generous the owner of the team is, he'll decide how many people get a ring because they understand it's not just 11 players on the field or 53 on the sideline. It takes an entire order. And I want to say to you today that it doesn't matter how much of an all-star you feel like in the faith or how insignificant you might think you are our responsibility so that we win the prize so I want to ask every one of you if you can would you stand with me all over this room we're about to pray and I want to ask you to participate to help carry some burdens today I want you to bow your head with me close your eyes and let's just let this be a moment that we kind of look within 
and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you haven't been following the way that was made for you at the cross 2,000 years ago, but you know today the voice of God is speaking to your heart and He's calling you to surrender your life to Him, to follow Jesus with your whole heart, to put your faith in Him, for the forgiveness of your sins. If that's you today, would you just confess that by raising a hand right now, unashamed, just lift a hand and say, that's, that's me, Pastor. I need God to forgive me, to give me His grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone else with these three that have already raised their hand and say, that's me. Lord, I confess my need for you today. Save me of my sins. You can put your hand back down after you've lifted it. Thank you, thank you. Now, church, I want every one of us to pray this prayer with those that just raised their hand. Would you pray this with faith? Pray this with confidence today. This is the hope of our salvation. Say this after me. Say, dear God, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die on the cross for my sin. I believe I'm saved by faith through what Jesus has accomplished. My sins are forgiven as I confess them. And I'm made new. The old life is gone. All things are becoming new. Right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just give God praise for what just happened in this room? Amen. Amen. Friends, I believe that today God is calling some people into the work. Not the moment, but into the work. Listen, if you gave your life to Jesus, you're saved completely. There's, there's no such thing as a half-saved person. Like, you can't be sort of Christian. <laughs> That's not a thing, okay? The moment you got saved, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. You have a seat in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, the Bible says. You're saved. You can't be more saved. But some of us, we, we need to make a fresh commitment today to live out that salvation. We need to do the work of obedience. And some of you, you're struggling to discern the will of God. I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should do that. I don't know why God allowed this situation in my life. Maybe you've been blinded by the, the lack of immediate good. But God is working. God is working. And He wants you to lean into Him today, to trust Him, to believe today. So as we end this service, I'm going to ask some of our, worst, our, our prayer team.